ICA presents. Hello, I'm Ellen Wartella, and welcome to this episode of the Architects of Communication Scholarship podcast series, a production of the ICA Podcast Network. Today, our architect is Sylvia Weisbord. Sylvia Weisbord is director and professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. Since joining GW in 2007, he has served the school as director of graduate studies and associate director. He's the author or editor of 18 books, and he's published in the areas of investigative journalism, media scandals, communication studies, media policy, and global social change. Between 2015 and 2018, Silvio was editor-in-chief of ICA's own Journal of Communication. Today, Silvia Weisbord is in conversation with Pablo Grushkowski. Pablo is Hamad bin Khalifa Althani Professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. And here is Pablo Grushkowski. I'm really thrilled to have this conversation today because beyond these professional accomplishments, Silvio is both an intellectual role model and a dear friend. What makes him a terrific intellectual is that he's curious, thoughtful, erudite, generous, and he's usually not taking himself or his ideas all that seriously. What makes him a dear friend is that Silvio is someone you can always talk to. He's the kind of person who will always listen to what you have to say and meet you where you are. Silvio, my friend, delighted to have you with us today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and thank you for your very generous introduction. Tell us about your personal history and your trajectory before you enter the communication field. I grew up in Argentina. Uh, more specifically, I spent my childhood in Patagonia, a town by the ocean, when I attended elementary school. When I was 10, uh, the family moved back to Buenos Aires, where I finished elementary school and high school. I started college in 1979. That was uh, during the military dictatorship in Argentina. I was very frustrated with the university experience in 1979, given I was in the Department of Sociology. I was not very happy studying there for a number of reasons, but primarily because studying during the dictatorship was not very intellectually rewarding. So I completed my degree in sociology in 1983, just as the dictatorship was pushed out of power after the 1982 Malvin Venus Falklands War. I knew when I was finishing college that I wanted to do research on politics um, and culture. After I finished, I was a research assistant for a well-known communication researcher in Argentina, and that's when I got the media communications bug, doing work with him on media industries. That was an experience for me to learn more about communication theory, communication studies, not only Latin America, but also in the United States and to some extent in some uh, European countries. My first immersion in communication study was after I finished my licenciatura in sociology. Who is this colleague who was highly influential in your becoming a communications person? His name is Heriberto Muraro, and he did a number of studies on the Argentine television and filmmaking industry. I was actually teaching assistant for a class, and I was working with his then wife. Heriberto was looking for a research assistant to do this big project on the filmmaking industry. It was in partnership with the Union of Filmmaking Workers, actually. So it seemed like a good research opportunity. That was the beginning. And then the year after, actually, I got the opportunity to be a teaching assistant for another 
important figure in communication studies in Latin America and in Argentina. That was Oscar Landi. I started being a research assistant. It is typical in Argentina in academic jobs. You have multiple jobs. You never have a single job. I also started being a research assistant for yet another communication researcher, Toto Schmuckler, who we were teaching a class on communication, design, popular culture for students in the School of Architecture. So I found myself working with these three well-known and very different in, in many ways communication researchers. And that's when I confirmed that I wanted to do communication and media studies. I was exposed to a number of scholars, many who came to guest lecture in the class that I was uh, TAing for. That was a wonderful experience of being exposed to great people, not just very interesting and very original scholars, but wonderful human beings willing to share time and talk about all kinds of stuff. The three of them were actually almost like uh, Renaissance scholars in the sense that you could talk to them not just about communication and media, but about politics, art, mathematics. Any topic was an interesting topic. So I particularly remember enjoying those conversations. I said, I want to do this for a living. That's when I decided that what I wanted to do in terms of research, teaching, writing, was media and communication studies. Very interesting. This was a period in Argentina and in other parts of Latin America of a certain democratic renaissance and a cultural effervescence. Absolutely. In fact, two of these three people actually went into exile during the military dictatorship. And when I met them, were pretty much fresh back into the country. One went into exile in Mexico, the other one in Brazil. Those were particularly, as you said, very effervescent times in Argentina, I would say 82 until 87, 88, sort of a democratic spring. In hindsight, you can see those were very exciting moments to do all kinds of things, but particularly to do intellectual work. It was a foundational moment. It seemed that experience shaped your trajectory considerably even to this day. Because if we fast forward many years, you had publications like the Communication Manifesto, Communication and Post-Discipline, and El Imperio de la Utopia, The Empire of Utopia, your essay about you know, your experience after 30 plus years of living in the U.S. These are texts that had this breadth of perspective. They are effervescent and they connect areas that in communication studies tend to be more siloed and modes of inquiry that tend to be separated. If we can fast forward, how was the process for writing both the communication manifesto and the communication and post-discipline, which are different, but they share that attempt to interrogate where the discipline is at and the interface between the discipline and society at large? Communication in a post-discipline comes out of the experience that I had as editor of the Journal of Communication, in which I thought there was a wonderful opportunity to learn more about what communication studies or communication science looks like, what it is, a very dynamic object of study and dynamic post-discipline. That was, that was the argument that I presented. I applied for the position because I thought it was an interesting opportunity to learn more about communication studies, not in order to figure out what communication studies is. Probably like most people, we enter communication studies in one niche, and then we find our place there, that eventually we expand to one or two more overlapping interests. That's our perspective of what communication studies is, out of 30, 40 plus divisions of ways that we slice up communication studies. 
the book was basically, I think I'm learning a lot here. I'm trying to figure out what I'm learning. And the book is an exercise to figure that out. Not in terms of, as an editor, but the perspective as an editor in terms of trying to figure that out. Every time that I saw a finalized issue of Journal of Communication, I said, what do these articles have in common? That to me was a very interesting intellectual challenge to answer. What is it? And the manifesto in some ways was ideas that I had for the communication discipline First of all, I didn't have this space. And second, it would have required much more explanation than the space that I could have <laughs> been granted. So I save the ideas about how do we sort of make sense if this is so chaotic, where do we find commas cross points? That's what the communication manifesto is. A call for rethinking what we mean by public scholarship in communication studies. I'm making an argument that perhaps the traditional ways of thinking about public scholarships are too narrow and don't capture much of what many of our colleagues do that doesn't necessarily fit the conventional idea of public scholarship as a scholar who has media presence. So let's then go back in time. You are in the second half of the 80s, in the middle of all of this cultural and political effervescence in Argentina, transitioning into communication, and you decide to go for graduate school. How was that process? Why the U.S.? Um, why San Diego? Why sociology? When I fell in love with communication and media studies, my plan was to study in Italy because of the work of many Italian communication researchers was widely read and discussed in Latin America. What happened was, among my other multiple jobs that I had back then, I also work for Elizabeth Jalin, who is a well-known sociologist in Argentina. She has done tremendous work on social movements, particularly human rights movements, feminist movements. I was uh, working as a teaching assistant for her. At some point, she asked me, have you thought about studying in the United States? And I said, no, I thought about studying in Italy eventually. She said, well, if you are interested, let me know if you want to sort of find out more about programs and I can tell you more about the kind of people who work in sociology. She explained patiently to me, these are the universities, this is what they do. And she primarily recommended me to go to programs with a strong Latin American studies. This was still the Cold War. There was a number of important and well-resourced Latin Latin American studies program in many American universities, such as the University of Texas and the University of California at San Diego. That's why I say, well, maybe if I go there, I can get a PhD in sociology and do work in culture and communication. I ended up in San Diego because I got teaching assistantship for two years. I didn't have my own funding. Financially made sense. And when I applied to San Diego, I found out about the Department of Communication in San Diego. I remember going to the Lincoln Library in Buenos Aires, which it was a library associated with the American Embassy. Maybe San Diego is the right place because I could take classes in the Department of Communication. And of course, in the Department of Communication in San Diego back then was Herb Schiller, widely known in Latin America. So that added another reason why I eventually ended up in, in San Diego a strong sociology program that had an emphasis on culture, at least back then, the Latin American Studies program, and this Department of Communication looked like a promising place for me to take courses. You mentioned some of your early intellectual influences, starting with the PhD program and onwards. What would you say were your influencers or intellectual role models, mentors that have shaped the way you're thinking about media communication over time? 
I will say Michael Shatson was in joint appointments in sociology and communication back then. So I took a course with him on U.S. political communication. And I found out sort of very stimulating talking to him. And also as I read his work, I found it profoundly challenging. Challenging because it's the kind of work that challenged you to rethink the conventional wisdom. It was a total pleasure to work with him and have him as my advisor. And also I worked closely with Dan Hallen. He was also in my committee. The Department of Sociology in San Diego, at least back then, was known for having strength in historical sociology and sociology of culture. I took a number of courses on both subjects, which I dearly loved, and helped me to think more between the macro and the micro in different ways. And finally, Chandra Mukherjee was in my committee as well. With her, I learned so much about not only sociology of culture, but doing qualitative work. Learning so much about academia, learning about social theory, I found her profoundly inspiring. I wrote my dissertation on changes in political communication in Argentina by looking at election campaigns and media and journalism in the 1980s. Those were sort of the people that I worked with closely. But I think that actually it's hard to actually pinpoint exactly your influence. Thinking about who influenced you is just a number of levels or categories. The people that you work closely with, the people that you read and admire, or you find that there's something interesting about the way they think or the way they read or the way they ask questions. Very interesting. Now, you have become arguably the most influential scholar of Latin American media, communication, journalism, politics, those intersections. One of the ways in which you have managed to do that globally is by becoming cultural, so to speak. You understand and embody the culture of the region, but you are a cosmopolitan and understand the culture, the norms, and the traditions of inquiry of the more globalized academic field. What is it that Latin American scholarship can bring to a global conversation? If you are an intellectual and academic in the global south, you're almost inevitably at the crossroads of different intellectual influences. It's very difficult to avoid it. So you become in contact with ideas originally produced in the U.S. or different parts of Western Europe just because of the nature of the travel of the organization of global academia, the north-south unidirectionality of ideas, especially academic ideas, for, for a long time. So something interesting happens when ideas that are originated in different places happen. When you read somebody who produce ideas looking at the experience of 19th century France or interwar period in the UK, and you read that in Argentina, in Brazil, in South Africa, or in Japan, because that is not the context. Why is that relevant to you? That is something that is almost natural in ways that is not if you are positioned, I will say, in context in the North. Because you are exposed to all these ideas, local ideas, original ideas, let's say anywhere in Latin America, that come from a very different traditional experience, in spite of the fact that people have digested European and American ideas for a long time and trying to sort of reinterpret them in the local context. So what we bring is something that is always trying to read it Trying to read it in different contexts, that is a different experience. I'm not saying it's better or it's worse. It is different. It's a processing part of never taking knowledge for granted. Absolutely right. Because it will be quite remarkable that ideas produced in different contexts will travel so well in very different cultural, economic, social, political contexts to explain things the same way. 
My sense has never been in this debate between imported and local ideas. I, that binary division did not make much sense to me because what always makes sense is being very omnivorous, taking and borrowing and rethinking or criticizing ideas coming from different places. It's primarily an exposure to ideas from a few European countries and the U.S. more than from other countries in the global south. I think that is changing gradually. The position that you occupy is, by definition, very different. And that's what I think we bring to this global debate. Not claiming uniqueness, but claiming uniqueness in being hybrid. What do you think are the big intellectual questions for communication scholars to address in the next decade or so? Toxic forms of public communication have become the fossil of research in the last decade, particularly in the last five years. Here we can think about disinformation, hate, denialism, conspiracy theories, all forms that we can cluster as toxic forms of communication from a perspective that believes in public life and democracy based on understanding, tolerance, difference, evidence, data, some kind of reason, some kind of positive emotions, empathy, understanding. And I don't think that we have an in-detail understanding of how better forms of communication can actually work in today's digital societies. We understand why toxic forms of communication have traction, why certain publics find it appealing, what are the political consequences, why social media platforms are built in such a way that appeal to the bad angels of our nature, so to speak. I don't know if we find, especially at a large scale, how the more positive ways of thinking about communication can actually be scaled up. In fact, we have a wider and richer vocabulary to call undemocratic forms of communication. And we still have the same language about positive forms of communication that build democracy or democratic values. And that, to me, is a big challenge. Again, it's not about whether it works in certain specific contexts local communities. It's how, how you think about large-scale phenomena here. That, to me, is one of the main challenges. What do you think are some of today's big societal challenges and opportunities where the field of communication and media studies can make a difference? Just choose any global social problem that we have. You can talk about environmental crisis, or you can talk about migration, or you can talk about gender-based violence, racism, disinformation, labor exploitation, any issue that you feel is a global social problem. And think about what are the communication questions here? What is it that communication can bring to understanding the problem as well as to resolving the problem? I find it a rich vein because any of these are interdisciplinary problems. Therefore, necessarily, there is a communication component there, no matter how you approach communication studies, how you arrive, how you ended up in communication studies. No matter how you understand communication, for sure you will find something that is relevant to any or many other global social problems. That, to me, is something that we can make an important contribution, not because it's only an intellectual challenge or because it is an existential challenge. It's because it's another way of engaging with non-communication scholars, activists, practitioners, in ways that can enrich the way we think, as well as something that we can contribute to fields and disciplines and institutions that actually don't know or have a different understanding of what communication does or how communication can help us understand a certain problem. What would you say you have built as an intellectual architect for the infrastructure of knowledge of the field? I think this idea of 
trying to find connecting points. To me, that is something that I think we sorely need as we become much more fragmented, much more diversified epistemologically, almost like living in parallel worlds and silos. How do we think about connecting points? Why would I do it? Why my institution will support bringing people together from different paths in communication studies under one roof? That requires finding commonalities, which you could say is an analogy for something else, but is sufficient for our post-discipline to find what we have in common. That's what I try to do. I think that I try to do a map of what the problem is in one book and try to offer at least one way of finding commonalities in the other book. That's what I tried to do when I was editor of Journal of Communication. I tried to do it in ways that it should represent the huge variety of voices and diversity of approaches, theories, questions that exist, that people identify themselves as communication research. That's a very important thing to do, especially if you are in a position like a journal editor. That's what I tried to do almost explicitly. That will be my imprint. That is a home to people who do very different communication research. They find that Journal of Communication is a journal that they read or publish in, etc. That's what I think that I try to do. And with many of these things, it's hard to tell what you accomplish. You try your best. What actually happens, we don't know. It is the satisfaction, the pleasure of the intellectual pursuits, just doing it, rather than what happens later on. Of course, that could be very rewarding, but in some ways, it is what is driving you, the curiosity or the passion that you have in doing that. To me, it was far more interesting trying to find the connecting dots rather than drawing strong lines. It's much more interesting to find new ideas or intersection points rather than battling over what is and what is not communication. I'm sure as an editor, you read many different ways of making arguments. There are ways of making arguments to take boundaries and there are ways of making arguments uh, to connect. How do you write for breaching, for connecting? You're trying to figure out along the way what are you trying to say and how you try to say in a way that is compelling and engaging. Think of yourself as a reader. How much time do you give a writer to bring you into the text? How much time? Two pages? Ten pages? Entire book? I think that is a matter of trying to be clear and compelling in a language that you find interesting. Second, you think in a way that is not dogmatic. I think that having grown up under an authoritarian regime, I became very sensitive to any kind of dogmatic thinking. It is boring. If you know beforehand what you're going to find out, who needs to do the research? Isn't that more interesting in which you find the research and actually you do the research and you find that your hypothesis was right rather than you already can predict what you're going to say before that? That, to me, is the challenge. Can you say something new, even if you write two pages or if you write 300 pages, something that you think that nobody has said it? Especially as we live in a very crowded environment with hundreds of journals. It's not how you stand out. It's how you, how you, how you make yourself be interested in what you're doing. <laughs> it's not about your status in the field. It's about why are you going to say the same thing you have been saying for the last 10 years on the previous two research projects? If I know the answer, is it still worth doing the research? All right, my friend, thank you very much for sharing your journey, your knowledge, your wisdom. Thank you personally for all that you've taught me and mentored me over the years. All the best for the future ahead. Thank you very much, Pablo. It is a pleasure having a conversation with you and thank you very much for your time and your very generous words. 
This episode of Architects of Communication Scholarship podcast series is presented by the International Communication Association Podcast Network and is sponsored by the School of Communication at Hong Kong Baptist University. This episode was produced by Dominic Bonelli and Charlene Borgos. Our executive producer is Devante Brown. Our production consultant is Nick Song. The theme music is by Humans Win. For more information about our participants on this episode, as well as our sponsor, be sure to check the episode description. Thanks for listening.